Evening. Happy New Year. What better way to start it than here in church? Although you may have done many things before you got here. Peace be with you. How about if I say it properly? The peace of the Lord be always with you. Let's pray. As we go to prayer, hear these words of invitation from God through Isaiah. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. You will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. Our great God, we thank you that you have safely brought us to the beginning of this day and this year. We thank you that you so constantly and patiently invite us not to waste our lives seeking joy and satisfaction and meaning in things that cannot satisfy, but that again and again you call us to yourself, where we will find food for our soul and refreshment for our soul. Please come and meet with us this morning, we ask, through Jesus our Saviour. Amen. Our reading comes to us this morning from John, chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. <clears throat> So John 4, 1 to 26. Now Jesus learnt that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? and also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep on coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband 
The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is coming from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one I'm speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord. A word of wisdom from a, um, a movie said this, you should always wonder what is the other person's version of this? I think it's pretty good for a movie. You should always wonder what is the other person's version of this? And you'll know there's a proverb that says exactly that, doesn't it? In Proverbs 18, it speaks of how unwise it is when you hear one side of a dispute or of a discussion to think you know what's going on until you have heard both at least. And the great thing in these stories is we get to hear the two sides. We get to hear from Jesus and we get to hear what real life flesh and blood people like you but different from you, um, how they responded to Jesus, what they made of, of him. The significance of the Gospels for us is not just interesting and truthful history, but because it says in Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. So you can see how Jesus responds to people now by seeing how he responded to various types of people and types of approaches to him and to life and to God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we look at this encounter between your son and this woman in Samaria, that we would meet you in a fresh way ourselves. Please make this possible, Father, by sending the Spirit to open our eyes and to glorify Jesus. Amen. Now, I need to be honest. I didn't choose this passage as one of the four encounters. We're looking at two men and two women, two broken people and two people who are doing okay in the way that they meet with Jesus and interact with Jesus. I didn't choose this because it's my favourite passage um, in the Gospels, and I'm not sure if it is, but boy, it's close. Uh, we get a beautiful insight into Jesus in this passage, it's very moving. And this woman is a very impressive woman. Um, she sometimes, I think, gets slightly misread as, as if she's deliberately avoiding issues. I don't think she is. And part of the reason, as I'll share with you, is because of the way Jesus treats her. If you want to play games with Jesus, as many people in his day did, he will play games with you. If you're earnest about wanting to know what the heck is going on, he will deal with you straight. And I think that's what he does here because he's very straight in revealing who he is to this woman in a way that, as we picked up at the end of the movie, he has never done before this moment. 
with this woman, this woman of Samaria. Uh, yes, I'll avoid the obvious joke about she's the largest woman in the Bible. But um, you can get that Samaria. <laughs> See, I didn't want to sort of explain it because it is a painful one. But there you go. Oh dear. But when you read through John's Gospel, uh, we can get tricked, as we've often said, by the chapters. They're useful in some ways. But the unit of John's Gospel from John chapter 3 to the end of John chapter 4, or at least the end of this story, is a very clear unit. And there's, there's, a, there's a compare and contrast between Nicodemus and this woman. And it's great to read both side by side. That's what Sunday's for. So you've got plenty of time just to read the great sweep of God's word. You could hardly get a more striking contrast than between Nicodemus and between this woman. For firstly, Nicodemus is named. We don't know who this woman is. Nicodemus was a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Nicodemus was a righteous man. And this woman on the codes then and even in some of the codes today is a, is a woman who has really done the very much the wrong thing. Hence, she comes on her own. She was a moral outcast in that culture. Um, whereas Nicodemus is a very impressive dude. Nicodemus instigates the conversation with Jesus. Jesus instigates the conversation with this woman. Nicodemus spends the whole time looking like a dope. And he goes away just completely confused by Jesus. She comes out of it completely transformed. And she's gone from a stranger to a believer to a lover to a warrior in just one conversation. So there's a lot, lot for us to learn from this, uh, this wonderful encounter as we watch what she's thinking about Jesus, and then what Jesus is thinking by the way he responds to her. Uh, so let's have a look at it. Um, the, the, the passages uh, that we looked at d divides really around two key ideas, water and worship, although those two ideas are inseparable. Interestingly, it's the woman who raises the question of worship, not Jesus. You might think the religious dude would bring up the worship question. No, 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 she brings that up. Jesus wants to talk to her and to us about water. You know that it works out there's the law of the rule of threes. You've got roughly three minutes you can go without air. You've got roughly three days you can go without water and three weeks roughly without food. You are designed by God as an entirely dependent creature. Any picture of you know, Mr. or Mrs. Independent is just ridiculous. We are very dependent little critters. It's the way God has made us. And one of the great dependencies we have is water. I imagine many of us in this building, most of us, have never experienced serious thirst. Gone for a couple of days, perhaps, without water. A friend in the military told me some years ago that the only time in his decades of, of time in the army where he saw military discipline break down was one time when they were out in the middle of nowhere doing some exercise. They'd been there for days, they'd run out of water. And when the water truck arrived, he said, I lost control of my men, uh, which is very rare. They were so desperate. Uh, thirst is a much stronger desire than, than for food or for sex or for any of these other things. We just often don't experience it because we've never been thirsty, which is a good and a nice thing. But Jesus will often speak of thirst. In fact, the last great offer in the Bible is an offer to those who are thirsty in Revelation 22. Jesus will often speak about himself and you as the, as the one who gives water or is water and the thirsty. 
and that's what comes up really clearly in this story. So let's have a look at this dialogue quickly, and Diane's going to try and put the verses that are appropriate um, up as we go. Let's start at verse 7. What was it like for her when she met Jesus? It's interesting, isn't it? Because she had no expectation of meeting someone famous. She didn't wake up and go, Woo, I get to meet Jesus today. Uh, she just gets up and thinks it's an ordinary, trying day. But she meets Jesus. Jesus sitting at the well because he's exhausted. He's thirsty. He's hungry. That's why the guys have gone off to get food. And he's frankly exhausted. The Bible is crystal clear that human, uh, Jesus is thoroughly human like you. He's also divine. This is the confusing thing, but he, we mustn't allow ourselves to lose sight of the fact that he is entirely human. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He gets worn out after walking in a hot day. He sits down at the well. Verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. <laughs> she would have thought this is really weird that Jesus asks her for a drink. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. Uh, she would have thought this is very odd. Uh, it would have been odd if Jesus had been a Samaritan man. She could tell by the clothing what he, whether he was Jewish or Samaritan. It would have been unthinkable for a Samaritan man to ask her for water. They just didn't do that. There was very clear, um, you don't speak uh, you know, to, to women that you're not married to or aren't in your family. Uh, it's just not appropriate. But Jesus speaks, and she, he's, he's a Jew. She finds this exceedingly puzzling. She says to him... How is it, verse 9, that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. She mentioned the fact that drinking out of the same utensil would be considered unclean. For most Jewish people, it was, it was that at least they would never drink from a cup that a Samaritan had touched. In fact, for many of them, the, the shadow of a Samaritan would make you dirty and filthy and unclean in need of cleansing because of that. I mean, we We've heard, I mean, there's racial tension between us and the dirty New Zealanders, but, but it, that's nothing compared there to the Samaritans. Um, it, it, was a, it was a hatred built over, over many, many years. Uh, and she's puzzled by it. Jesus really is very confusing. Um, then he sort of, he gives her a little lecture, which might have seemed strange. Jesus answered, listen, this is a strange answer. She says, how can you ask me for a drink? He says... If you knew the gift of God and who is saying... So he basically says, lady, you're ignorant, which is not all that nice. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he goes from asking her to saying, lady, if you only knew what was going on, you'd be asking me. But you don't know who I am and you don't know the gift that God wants to give you. It's a, it's a very puzzling sort of discussion he's having with her. Then she kind of puts him in his place. Verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? I think she's partly saying, big talk, big talk. Here you are, very thirsty. You haven't got a bucket. Where are you going to get? And, and you, you think you're going to give me living water. Living water was the, was the way that the Jews often spoke of water that actually runs in a stream, in a creek. So it's fresh and cool and refreshing. Water in the well would keep you alive, but it often had a bit of a dank taste to it. Even this great well, which you can still drink from. I haven't drunk from it, but that well is still operating 2,000 years after Jesus uh, sat beside it, the well that Jacob dug. But she really thinks that, um, you know, what are you on about? 
And I think she's a feisty woman. I, I think she's good fun. Uh, you don't have a bucket. Then she basically says in verse 12, who do you think you are? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it. So she really is sort of saying, you know, yeah, talk. That's not very impressive. Then Jesus begins to give her lecture number two. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water, the well, will get thirsty again. Whoever drinks from the water that I will give them will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give will become a well of water springing up within them. It's an extraordinary claim Jesus is making. Isn't it? He's saying he can give to you an internal supply of water that will do what water does. That is, it will quench your thirst. He contrasts what water does for a physical body with what he offers and seems to think he is the only one who will and can to our heart, our emotions, our spirit, our soul, whatever you use for that, that deep internal part of being human. Jesus says, I can give you that water. I am the one who can offer and satisfy you in that way. Well, then she seems to be at least somewhat impressed because she, she finally gets into the posture Jesus wants her in. She says, sir, give me. So at first Jesus is asking, will you give me? Finally, she's in the position that all humans need to be with Jesus, where we come to him and say, will you give me? I don't come offering you my magnificence and my excellence. I come needy, which is one of the reasons why it's so hard for moderately successful people to become Christians, uh, just because they're just not used to having to admit their exceeding dependence. They bull on about being Mr. or Mrs. Independence. And then to come to Jesus and say... I don't offer you my significant whatevers. I come in need. I come as a thirsty person to you. She says, give me this water. Uh, so I don't have to come here day after day. I don't think she understood entirely, but at least she's got the relationship right. Well, then I think she would find Jesus' next uh, statement puzzling and embarrassing. Verse, 17, uh, verse 16. Go and call your husband, Jesus told her, and come back. Now, this, like a number of things in the Gospels, is strange because Jesus never ever does this with anyone, male or female, call them to go and get their spouse. He has many, many interactions with many, many women. It's one of the outstanding things in the Gospels. And I say this with, with respect and some, some knowledge, not you know, exhaustive knowledge, remarkably different to the accounts of the life of Muhammad or the accounts of the life of the Buddha. The way Jesus treats women is just universes apart from the way that the Buddha excluded them until he was persuaded by others that he should allow some of them to become his disciples and certainly very different to the way that Muhammad uh, in the Sharia etc speaks of women but um, Jesus never asks him to get their husband except here and I want to suggest you it's because he's on the subject of water where do we find our thirst satisfied or where do we go for our thirst to be satisfied go and call your husband hmm she would have hoped that hadn't come up. Verse 17, I don't have a husband. She answered. Jesus said, you have correctly said I don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, friends, I want to suggest he's been quite gentle. He's saying, you, you've spoken truthfully. He doesn't say, oh, dear, 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 hiding and playing shenanigans, right? You've had five Right? Now he says, you've spoken the truth. You don't have a husband. The bloke you're living with, 
won't marry you or something's gone wrong there. But that she's had five husbands before that, it's very unlikely that all five of them died. It's much more common for the women to die than the men to die like that. And frankly, who would have lined up to be husband number three, four or five? Huh? It would seem an unwise thing to do. Almost certainly she's, she's, for various reasons, either divorced or been divorced numerous times and left. She's now in a relationship that, in that culture, very deeply frowned on. In our culture, not so much, if at all, but in that culture, very deeply. That's why she's on her own here at the well. Well, she, she now starts to see who Jesus is. She, Jesus already saw who she was. She now starts to see, verse 19, Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Right? See, okay, I can see this, this knowledge you've got. It's not just you don't work for the CIA, right? You've never been here. I don't tell people about my secret romantic and sexual past. Um, this, is, this is a supernatural knowledge and wisdom that you've been given. I can see that you're a prophet. Now, what happens next? People differ on this, uh, just in their interpretation. Some people think she goes into sort of avoidance technique, like a sort of a ship that knows that there's a submarine out there. It starts to you know, tr do anything to avoid being an easy target. I don't think she's doing that. And the reason I don't think she's doing it, because if you do that with Jesus, he will not play straight with you. You can see it all the way through the Gospels. If you play games with Jesus, he'll play games with you. But he doesn't play games with this woman. He reveals to her something he hasn't revealed to anybody publicly. So I think the, just from the way Jesus treats her, it's very clear she's not a game player. I think she's just realised, OK, here's my chance. Uh, a woman in her situation would probably have never been allowed to talk to a rabbi to get any education on things theological. But she understood as a Samaritan the ancient problem between her, between them and their neighbours. Here's what she says. She asks him a question. Okay, here she's, she's finally in front of a prophet, someone who really has come from God. So she tries to get some benefit out of that. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Yet you Jews say the place to worship is Jerusalem. This is a very important discussion. Both of them thought that each other's worship was worthless because they worshipped in the wrong place. It matters what mountain you put your temple on. It matters what place you go to for your religious pilgrimages, etc., etc., etc. So she's like, okay, who's right? You've surprised me so far about things. Jesus disappoints her and surprises her. Verse 21. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. That's not very nice. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus is going to come back to the point that in the end this whole argument you've got is about to become a nothingness. But he does say actually the Jews are right. right? That wouldn't have made her very happy to be told that, you know, her family, her tribal group is simply mistaken about God. But there are ways to worship God that may be ancient, but they're simply mistaken. And Jesus will say that much. He says, no, Jerusalem is the place. But this is the important thing, verse 23. An hour is coming. Now, as you read through John's Gospel, we're going to start reading through it um, as we soap start tomorrow. We're going to start in John 1. You'll find that Jesus often in John will speak of the, my hour is coming. My hour has not yet come. In chapter 12, he says, my hour has come. The hour, the hour of Jesus' glory is the hour of his death. It's the death of Jesus, which is the last sacrifice. 
the last great final sacrifice. No, no more is needed since then. He says that when the hour is coming, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, he's saying the hour is coming when mountains won't matter. In a sense, there's no sacred places because all the universe is sacred. But to worship God in spirit, that seems to be the sense of the, with, with the heart and with truth. It matters what you believe about God. It matters that you believe what is true about God. And a good thing for this year is to pray that God would help you grow in that which is true, which often means learning that some of the stuff you thought was true isn't true. To be corrected by God is a wonderful blessing because we've got all sorts of things in our head. I have, you have, that, that aren't. We just need to have Jesus correct us and to tell us that which is true because it's the truth alone that sets us free. But Jesus says the time is coming when truth and spirit will be the great marks of things. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Her head must have been spinning. This is a lot of theology to take on, and it's unthinkable, because almost all religions of the world have this sacred spaces that they want you to go on marches to, that you, you get points for God if you go there. And Jesus says, no. It's just not of, of no interest to God. Because of his death, something more wonderful has happened. It seems at this point that she gets mental exhaustion in verse 25. She says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. At that point, I think she's saying, OK, OK, this is, this is all getting a bit confusing. Um, that wasn't the answer I was looking for. We just have to wait. We don't have enough information. We have to wait till the Messiah comes. Hmm. So. She thinks the conversation has pretty much come to an end and then really it hits the most important note of all, probably. She says, he will explain everything to us. Verse 26, I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. She says, we have to wait, wait for the Messiah to come. He's much more than a prophet. The Messiah is the king, the God-appointed liberator and king. We have to wait, and Jesus says, not anymore, you don't. Uh, you don't have to talk about him, you can now talk to him. And Jesus is saying, the great future has arrived. Now, this is, this is a great moment. This is the first time Jesus has revealed this like this. Right? So much of the time in, in the Gospels, Jesus almost hides from the fact of just making a blunt statement. But to this woman, with a very colourful past, who was the other women in the town would not be seen with her because she was such a wicked woman, right? is the first person Jesus reveals who he is. Right? It's grace and grace alone. Not Nicodemus, who was a great teacher in Israel right? and a highly revered and respected man. Not the guy in chapter 3, but the woman in chapter 4. It's very beautiful what Jesus is doing here as he reveals the truth. And then she runs back excited to her village to tell them about the man that she has discovered, or really the man who has discovered her, because it's all Jesus' initiative. Nicodemus takes initiative with Jesus and gets completely baffled within a second. Jesus takes the initiative with her. This is why if you let Jesus tell his side of the story, as you heard in the reading, it said Jesus had to go. It's a little word, must it's a very strong necessity word. He had to go through Samaria. Now, many of you know he didn't have to go through Samaria. Most Jews, if they were going from Jerusalem back up to Galilee, would go around Samaria. Why? Because it was dangerous for Jews to go through Samaria. 
The hatred was so intense. And they didn't want to get unclean. They would walk around it via the Jordan River. So people, are, you know, people who are trying to find, oh, I found a mistake in the Bible. Jesus, Jesus didn't have to go because it was the only way. John knew that. He had to go because it was a divine necessity. It was a divine appointment. He went through Samaria to meet this woman. Right? And in, in just one conversation, she moves from being a stranger to a lover, stranger to a believer to a lover, and in the end, she's the first, she really is the first Christian missionary. She heads off to tell the people of her village that the Messiah has come. And it's beautiful because she says, come and see a man who tells, told me everything I'd ever done, which is not the sort of thing she would normally you know, draw to people's attention. Could he be the Messiah? And they spend a few days together. And then I think at the end of the story, the, the, the Samaritan village are fairly un, unnice to her because they say, it's not because of what you said, it's because we've seen with our own eyes and we've seen that he is the saviour of the world. I think that's a little unkind. Because take her out of the equation and there is no equation. So that, this is who she is. Jesus must go there for this divine appointment, this work. Jesus knows that he brings water. This is one of the things he wants you to know. You are a thirsty creature, not just physically. But this becomes a common picture that Jesus has for the deep longings in your heart that often drive us in ways that we're not even conscious of. These great felt needs that we have. Jesus will say in, in chapter 7, he says a similar thing. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus saying that he is the one person who can satisfy our deepest human needs. Why does he bring up the five husbands? I used to think it was because we, we do need to face our sin if we're going to get caught up with Jesus, and we do. But I want to suggest, no, I don't think he's changed the subject. He's on the same subject. Where has she been drinking? Where do most Australians hope that their deepest longings will be met? In love, sexuality, and romance. It is the great God that our society worships. You can do almost anything to anyone if you just say, but I'm in love. It's the get out of jail card. Some of the worst words children ever hear is from one of their parents when the parent says, I'm in love. Because it often can mean that's for, therefore I'm leaving everything. Uh, I have to be true to myself. Uh, but this is what Jesus is saying here. This is, this, is where she's, this is the puddle, as it were, she's been drinking from. This is the idolatry. Love, sex and romance is a good thing. It's God's idea. He's made us like that. But... Almost the better the gift from God, the more dangerous it is. Because you can easily fall in love with the thing rather than honouring God by the way that we live in that, in that zone. Uh, there's a fellow called um, Viktor Frankl, who many of you will have had the, the pleasure of reading some of his stuff. He, he's um, a founder of one of the Viennese schools of psychiatry. He was taken into Auschwitz. He was Jewish uh, in the war. His mum, dad, wife and a brother and a sister all died in those Jewish camps, in those Nazi camps. He survived. And what he did was he studied humanity. 
What made people able to... Why was it that some people could live for years and others, often great, big, strong, healthy young men and women could die very quickly? And he simply discovered that those who had no great purpose that they lived for would fall apart and die quickly. But he said some of them who were quite sick and weak could survive for years if they had some meaning or purpose that they understood that their life was about. He gets out and he writes a book, um, A Man's Search for Meaning, where he says that unlike a lot of the um, ideas we get in modern sort of secular psychology, which says you need, well, you need food and you need shelter and you need, and at the very top, you can then go for sort of personal fulfillment. Frankel says rubbish, it's the reverse. The thing you most need to survive is not these other things, but that deep sense of why am I here? What is my purpose in life? What is life calling from me? Right? Not just to what, what is life offering me? And he makes a really interesting statement towards the end of that book where he says, in a culture where there's a, there's a vacuum of meaning, we will fill it up with the pursuit of pleasure or power. Pleasure, normally with an obsession about sexuality. Power, normally with an obsession about money and wealth. And brothers and sisters, that just sounds awfully like our society, doesn't it? Right? Sexuality and wealth are the two great driving hopes for us that will make us truly happy at last, at long last. And he says they are proof of the absence of the thing which we are made for, which is a sense of something far more, far more binding, far more transcendent. He said he didn't really care what you found, but it had to be something beyond yourself. And he said for most people it is a God question. To quote another Victor, Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Miserables, etc., um, he's got a beautiful quote which I think takes us to what is it that satisfies the heart where he says the supreme human happiness is found when we know that we are loved for who we are no in spite of who we are right? I think he's right, right the supreme human happiness is discovering that you are loved because you are loved not loved because you're worth it because if you're loved because you're worth it you can easily disqualify yourself or the person who loves you because you're beautiful and funny etc etc can find someone who is more beautiful and more funny than you but the love that God has for you he loves you because he loves you he loves you to die for you you are to die for as far as Christ is concerned this is the love that he has and this is the water that satisfies the heart all other sorts of loves and that are wonderful and to be enjoyed and to be counted as a thing to be thankful for but to bring the two victors together, that is the great meaning that we need. The great purpose is to know ourselves loved. And that you find in Jesus. Because he is the one who embodies the love that God has for you, as he does with this woman. He is so patient with her and so persistent with her right? and so kind to her. The way that he puts herself under her firstly and says, can you help me, before he then reveals the whole thing to her. That he, he does the one wins one thing. And Windsor, and then she heads off uh, to bring the good news to her uh, fellow Samaritans, and they come to know who he is. Well, I, the question for us is to, is to keep looking at both sides of the story. This is a face-to-face -face meeting between this feisty, you know, broken but much-loved woman and Jesus. This is who he is. Uh, so, uh, I, I do hope. 
that you were drinking from the fountain and not just from various puddles that he might provide. They can satisfy for a while. Um, Alison often quotes this proverb in various things when we're looking at various friends and the way that we respond to things. That to the, I think it is, to the thirsty, the bitter tastes sweet. Is that right? To the lonely, the bitter tastes sweet. And often we have done that. We have asked too much of loving relationships. We've built our hopes on what is an idol. As the Bible says, we put our trust in a wobbly tooth. They will let us down, sadly. But thankfully, if it draws us in the end to know the one who is the water of life. And the very last invitation in the Bible is from Revelation 22:17. Hear this. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who, who wishes take the, the free gift of the water of life. It's interesting, the very last offer like that in the whole of the Bible is in this picture of, are you thirsty? Make sure you come to the one who is the water of life, to Jesus. And in that, let that fuel, energize, hydrate you that you can get on with the business of loving others. All right, enough of that one, the face-to-face. -face. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you didn't leave us guessing how to worship you, how to live wisely. Uh, thank you that you came in the person of your son to seek and to save that which was lost. Thank you for the beautiful way that your son sought and saved this woman in Samaria. Thank you for his patience and his persistence. Thank you for your patience and persistence with us. And we pray that like this woman, we would seek that which is true and drink from the water that truly satisfies and perhaps even become a, a, a cause of others coming to you who is the water of life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.